everyone. This is Carly Burridge, and today we'll be mapping obesity on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-minute matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important, not only because it invites us to really stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Carly Burridge. Carly Burridge is a nationally recognized expert in obesity medicine. She is a physician assistant and fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association. She is a co-author of the Obesity Algorithm and serves on the board of trustees for the Illinois Obesity Society. Carly has received multiple awards for her work in expanding the field of obesity medicine and in furthering obesity education for healthcare providers. Carly is also the founder of GainingHealth.com, which she developed to support healthcare providers who want to incorporate obesity medicine into their medical practice. Her mission is to increase the availability of science-based, compassionate obesity treatment and to end weight bias and stigma. Carly, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Carly, your work in obesity medicine is vast and really fascinating. Can you start us out by defining what constitutes obesity? Yeah, sure. You know, this is something where there's so many misconceptions around what exactly is obesity. And we have to remember that obesity has been recognized to be a multifactorial chronic relapsing progressive medical condition. Mm. And, you know, it's so often it's just thought of as, you know, a lifestyle choice, or it's just a matter of, you know, eating less and moving more, but there's so much more to it. Um, the causes of obesity are so multifactorial. There's so much that goes into it, such as, you know, genetics, epigenetics, mm. environmental factors, obviously nutrition and physical activity play a role, but there's so many other things as well that actually cause us to overeat and cause us to be less active. So those are really more the results and the effects of obesity uh, than just purely the causes. Um, another really important one for medical providers is weight promoting medications mm -hmm. and medical conditions that can trigger weight gain. So it's so much more complex than most people realize. And I think it's so important that people recognize that there's so many different factors that can contribute to the development of obesity. 
That's one of the things I really love about your work and your messaging, Carly, is that you bring in this awareness about obesity being a chronic disease state and also so multifactorial. If we think about the antecedents themselves, the upper left side of the matrix and those genetic predispositions, is there anything particular there that you like to point out that might just set us up from the get-go as somebody who's more predisposed? Exposed to obesity? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if we think about our origins, if we think about biologically how our bodies and our brains were developed, a lot of us have the genetics to gain weight because traditionally, you know, we've been around for millions of years and for the vast majority of human history, our, the major concern was making sure that we didn't die of starvation. So accumulating body fat was a good thing. And so there's a lot of genes, over 100 different genes that have been identified that are associated with weight gain. And the more of those genes an individual has, the higher likelihood that they will develop obesity. And so I kind of talk about those genetics like light switches, mm -hmm. right? So if the more light switches somebody has, the higher the likelihood that those light switches will get turned on with the right environmental triggers. So if somebody doesn't have very many of those light switches, you know, the chances are pretty small that they'll develop obesity, but the vast majority of us um, have numerous genes that can cause us to store body fat and to gain weight with the right environmental triggers. So that's really where you see that intersection of environment and genetics. And we just happen to live in the perfect environment now right. to trigger those genes to get turned on for people to gain weight and to eventually develop obesity. And it's also important to note that, you know, epigenetically, this yes. gets passed on from, you know, parents to their offspring. Right. So this is something that's that's inherited as well, um, genetically as well as epigenetically. I want to talk more about those triggers and the things that can trigger those light switches to go on, those epigenetic factors. But before we do, how do these genetic factors map to factors like race, ethnicity, gender, geographical demographics, how, how are we seeing that map out? Yeah, it's very variable between, um, you know, different people where they're from, different races, ethnicities, things like that. You know, I was just looking at a study the other day that talked about African-American women yeah. and insulin resistance right. and, and insulin secretion. And we know that insulin plays such a huge role in weight gain because yep. that's the hormone that determines whether we are storing body fat and producing body fat in, in, when our insulin levels are high or whether we have the ability to burn body fat fat, uh, to use fat as a fuel source when our insulin levels are low. So that's just one example. Another example too is, you know, when we start to see complications of obesity is really when we develop something called adiposopathy, or at least that's when we start to see the metabolic complications of obesity, such as diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I mean, the list goes on and on, but that really has to do with how much fat your body can safely store in your subcutaneous fat stores. And when you start to run out of safe places to store your fat, then the body starts 
starts putting fat in places where we're not supposed to have this adipose tissue, such as, you know, in our organs, in our liver, in the, in the case of fatty liver disease, um, in our pancreas, which contributes to pancreatic dysfunction, mm-hmm. in our muscle, which contributes to insulin resistance. And so we also know that with different ethnicities, they have different amounts of body fat that they're able to store safely. So for instance, some people of, of Asian descent, they don't have as high of a capacity for fat storage. And so we start to see complications of obesity mm. at much lower BMIs or much lower adiposity. So yeah, those are all really important things to take into consideration. And I also think that that highlights the reason why BMI alone is not um, a great diagnostic tool for obesity. You really have to look at other factors as well, such as waist circumference, and also just the complications, whether they're metabolic complications, biomechanical complications, psychosocial complications. So all of those things need to be taken into consideration as well, rather than just looking at BMI. I was going to ask you a little bit about BMI. How do you use BMI when you are thinking through this more matrixed lens? Yeah, so BMI is is a good screening tool. It's good on a population level, but on the individual level, you really want to look beyond BMI alone. Some ways to do that is if you have access to a body composition analysis, uh, that tells you really more about the composition of that tissue. Is it adipose tissue? Is it muscle mass? If somebody has a high muscle mass, they might have a higher BMI, but you know, be totally healthy. Whereas also you might have somebody with a normal BMI, but they have sarcopenia, they have very low muscle mass. And so, you know, looking beyond BMI with a body composition or a waist circumference is actually something really easy to do as well. So a waist circumference for men over 40 or for women over 35, that's another indicator that they are storing excess belly fat, which means that you know they could be running into problems having to do with adiposity, even if their BMI is normal. So you talked about a number of triggers, particularly myriad environmental factors. Can you say more about those triggers, environmental factors? I'm thinking about food intake. Mm-hmm. Carly, I'm also thinking about hormones, even trauma. What might we yeah. think about as the biggest lifestyle triggers that would really tip that edge into um, obesity. Yeah. And that's where it's so important to get a good weight history from somebody Mm. because you really need to look at all of those triggers and understand those triggers because it can be so different for, for different people. Um, so without asking them and finding out more about their weight history, it's really hard to know, but certainly trauma can be a very common cause or psychological stressors. We know that hormones like cortisol, your stress hormone, if people have chronically elevated cortisol, this also contributes to the development of insulin resistance. So those stressors in somebody's life and then environmental factors. So access to food, access to healthy food, you know, just lack of planning of, of eating, eating behaviors. So we know that obviously with increased intake of processed foods, 
that definitely plays a big role that contributes to insulin resistance. And when people develop insulin resistance, that's a very strong trigger for weight gain. And most people are not even aware that they have insulin resistance because it happens 10 to 15 years before blood sugar ever starts to become abnormal. So what I highly recommend, what I started doing is checking a fasting insulin level along, you know, with, with other labs like lipid panels, A1C, uh, and some of the other standard labs that you would order to really see what's going on. And then when you see that if the insulin is elevated, you can talk to your patient about that. And you can talk to them about how, especially nutrition, but also physical activity and sleep and stress management, you know, how all of those things can affect their insulin sensitivity. And then that really triggers that that's very motivating when a patient can see, okay, my insulin is going up on labs. I need to do something about this. I don't want to go on and develop diabetes or other complications. What can I do? And that's when you start to incorporate the lifestyle changes. Yeah, that's really amazing. And I always like to say, if you're not sleeping, you're not pooping and your blood sugar is imbalanced, it's hard to pass go. And this would be true for those who are struggling with obesity as well. There's sort of a catch-22 you're talking about in terms of insulin resistance. So that would be something going on physiologically that's impacting obesity outcomes, but obesity is also going to impact pancreatic function and you're in this catch 22, what are some of the other ways that we're seeing the body function impacted? You talked about the liver. What else might we see in terms of organs and um, even mental health? Like you said, it's a two-way street a lot of times between obesity and a lot of these medical conditions, including mental health, like depression, there's a two way street. So obesity can cause depression and depression can cause obesity. So sometimes it's it's hard to know what caused what, but the good thing is a lot of times when we focus on the treatment, you know, you're, you're kind of treating both. Yes. So, you know, that's, that's a good way to look at it is, you know, we don't sometimes know what caused what, but we can work on our emotional health. We can work on stress management. We can work on optimizing our sleep making sure that we're screening people for obstructive sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome, you know, take having them take a sleep test is so important. So many people with undiagnosed sleep apnea, which is triggering weight gain and worsening of their conditions. And again, obesity can cause sleep apnea, but sleep apnea will cause worsening obesity and will make it harder for somebody to lose weight. So there is definitely um, a bi-directional relationship there between a lot of the complications of obesity and obesity itself. And in your work, Carly, what's the role of a calorie. Like, I really feel like I have to do an entire podcast on calories, right? So maybe I need to bring you back to talk about calories. But when we think about calories, are you seeing that it's a matter of caloric intake that needs to be shifted? Or is it a matter of food quality? To me, we always have to think about quality, quantity, diversity, timing, all those parts of the food equation matter. But what are you seeing mostly make the biggest difference? Honestly, the biggest difference that I see is focusing on appetite control, Hmm. focusing on hunger and satiety. 
Because we know that when somebody develops obesity, the research indicates that a lot of times these appetite regulating hormones yep. that tell our brain about how much to eat, when to eat, when to stop eating, those hormones go awry. So people can develop um, leptin resistance in yep. addition to obviously insulin resistance. They can have alterations of their gut hormones that influence appetite like GLP-1, uh, ghrelin, our primary hunger hormone. Research shows that in some people with obesity, they don't have that drop in ghrelin after they eat the way that we're supposed to have. So they're always hungry. So I think assessing for appetite and assessing for emotional eating and what those triggers are, are so important. And then trying to really manage their appetite in whichever way you need to do that. So sometimes we can do that with nutrition itself. So we know that a low carbohydrate diet um, eating sufficient protein and healthy fats and fiber, those types of things can help enhance satiety mm -hmm. so that people are less hungry. But you also have patients where despite doing that, they're still hungry all the time, or they have a really hard time fo following the, your recommended nutrition plan because either they're just so hungry all the time or their cravings are so strong that they really have a difficult time sticking to their nutrition plan. Yep. So at that point, we really do need to talk about other treatment options like pharmacotherapy or like anti-obesity medications or bariatric surgery, metabolic and bariatric surgery to help address those hunger levels. So that's really where obesity medicine varies a little bit from other lifestyle medicines mm -hmm. is that we do use pharmacotherapy and other treatment modalities like surgery or devices to help control appetite so that somebody can actually stick to the nutrition plan that we are talking to them about. So I think that's so important. Yeah, it's really important that we know when we have done what we can do with somebody and where they need additional help. This is what I like to always think of as the yes and in all sorts of therapy. It's where we should all be thinking through an integrative lens and where we partner and need additional help to get somebody to that place where their body is in under so much stress. Speaking of stress and what it would be helpful for us to be looking at more regularly, one of the things I love about how you talk about obesity is that when we recognize it as a chronic condition, we really can change how we are approaching it. Can you talk a little bit about the long-term implications of redefining obesity as a chronic condition? I think it's so important that we recognize obesity as a chronic disease, as it was defined by the American Medical Association in 2013, because we so often don't treat it as such. We know that over 50% of obese people with obesity are not given the diagnosis, um, that if they are given the diagnosis, it takes about on average six years until that diagnosis is made. And for those people who are given the diagnosis of obesity, Less than 25% of those people have ever had a follow-up scheduled to address the obesity. And so we don't see that with any other medical condition, really. So it's really important that, one, we diagnose it, and two, that we develop a plan to address it. You know, the plan of telling the patient they just need to eat less and move more is clearly not sufficient, is not helpful. So it's really important that we recognize it as a disease and that we treat it as such. And the long-term implications for this is that this is a chronic 
disease, just like diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, anything like that. And so we need to treat it chronically, which means that whatever treatment is helping the person get their weight under better control. And a lot of times, all that means is a five to 10% weight loss. That has very significant medical benefits. So it's not like we have to get somebody down to an ideal body weight. Even just that five to 10% makes a huge difference. But then whatever we're doing to treat that patient, we need to continue that treatment. So if you get somebody's blood pressure under control by prescribing, you know, an antihypertensive medication and making whatever lifestyle changes, you don't take that medication away as soon as the person achieves a better blood pressure. You keep them on that because the medication is helping them achieve that blood pressure control. And so same thing with obesity. If you're using comprehensive treatment, including nutrition, physical activity, you know, behavioral changes, um, and if you're using pharmacotherapy to get somebody's weight at a better control, you don't discontinue that treatment once somebody has lost that weight. You want to continue it because this is a chronic disease. So I think that's a really big mindset change for a lot of providers and for patients. Such an important message, Carly. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge with us. Such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great talking about this today. And I know we could talk about this all day. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, please head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, we'd love to hear from you. We want to know your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can always email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.